0: It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
1: that almost all the interventions that we've ever done that have worked to make people happier work by making them feel more connected.
2: Hello and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today we welcome Sonia Lubomirsky on the show. Sonia is a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of California, Riverside. Originally from Russia, she received her A.B. summa cum laude from Harvard University and her Ph.D. in social personality psychology from Stanford University. Her research has been featured in hundreds of magazines, newspapers, shows, and documentaries in North America, South America, Asia, Australia, and Europe. Dr. Lua best-selling books, The How of Happiness and The Myths of Happiness, have been published and translated in over 16 countries. In this episode, I talked to Sonia about happiness. Across all of her research, Dr. Lubomirski has found that connection is what makes people happy. So then, how do we form high-quality connections? Dr. Lubomirsky gives us insight on how to use kindness, reciprocity, and gratitude to maintain and strengthen our relationships. We also touch on the topics of psychedelics, interpersonal chemistry, and social media. It's always fun chatting with Sonia. She's a friend, and I really admire her research in the field. She's a real pioneer in the science of happiness. So I'm excited to share her ideas with this audience today. So without further ado, I bring you Sonia Lubomirsky. How are you doing today? I am doing amazing. How are you?
1: I'm doing amazing. Today was the first day of school, so it's a big day.
2: Well, thank you for taking the time to be on my humble podcast. It's a pleasure. Well, so as you know, I'm such a big fan of yours and uh, preparing for... Today's episode and um, reviewing your work, it's like, wow. Like, how do, there's so many fascinating things to discuss. And you've been studying the topic of happiness for 30 years, hmm. more than 30 years. Yes. Is that right?
1: Yes, in grad school.
2: And 23 of those years, you've been studying how to increase it. Why did you get interested in this topic to begin with?
1: You know, it was serendipitous actually on the very first day of graduate school. I met with my advisor, whose name is Lee Ross, um, and he is one of the world's experts on conflict and negotiation, which is like the opposite of happiness. And we walked around uh, and we, I don't know who said it, probably he first said it. He said, uh, you know, what is the secret to happiness? And why are some people happier than others? And back then, Mm -hmm. this was in 1989. So yeah. You did your math. So more than 30 years ago, (laughs) you know, there's only one person who really was studying happiness. That was Ed Diener, uh, kind of the founder of the field of happiness. Um, And there were just a few other kind of writers thinking about it, obviously, for thousands of years, you know, thinkers and writers and poets have been talking about happiness. Uh, but empirical research was very minimum. So, yeah, so it was kind of serendipitous.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to, like, get my head back to that time period and what was being published in psychology at the time. So there was stuff on subjective well-being, life satisfaction. Uh, Martin Seligman, had he uh, initiated no. positive psychology? No. No,
1: that was 10 years that was ten years later. Yeah, because
2: that was 1998. So there probably wasn't even much talk about things like such as purpose within the – umbrella of happiness right there really was a focus on
1: now of course there's a humanistic tradition you know maslow of course of Carson, that already had been talking about these sort of positive constructs more you know in terms of theory than you know like experimental research so i think we you know myself and, and many others started uh, kind of a, a very like rigorous empirical tradition studying these positive constructs experimentally
2: and you wrote the how of happiness
1: uh, right. which
2: has an amazing uh, collection of activities and things we can do. Mm-hmm. When this this discussion of happiness comes up, a lot of people ask me just how much we can change and how much is in our genes. Um, I wanted to start off with just a higher-level overview of that because you've thought of that in a really, really nuanced way, and I believe you wrote a paper with uh, mm-hmm. Ken and Sheldon um, mm-hmm. on this topic. Mm-hmm. If you could just give it a high-level overview of you know, just how much is within our control, that would be wonderful.
1: Sure, sure. Well, you know, originally we came up, Ken and I came up with a uh, a theory that we called the pie chart. And the, the idea there mm-hmm. is that there's sort of three main determinants of happiness, kind of like three buckets of influences on happiness. One is our genetics, you know, our personality, which is, you know, very much influenced by genetics. The second one is our life circumstances, right? Some, if you're poor, if you live in a, War zone. You know, if you're in a, an abusive relationship, right? You're going to be really unhappy. Um, and then the third bucket is like what we actually can do in our daily lives to kind of maintain happiness, either make us happier or less happy, for that matter, in terms of a kind of our daily behaviors and think in the ways that we think about things. And a long time ago, we kind of we tried to put numbers on those three categories. And I, we think that was a mistake because you know we really don't know what the numbers are. Um, so now I guess our more nuanced perspective is that we still believe that there are these three types of influences on happiness. Um, genetics really are pretty powerful. Research with twins, um, research that compares twins that are identical to twins that are fraternal uh, shows that there's a really high like heritability component for happiness. Like there is for almost any human trait including love of jazz music, right? Including your blood pressure. And so identical twins are much more similar in their happiness levels than our fraternal twins. So we know that suggests that there's sort of a genetic component to happiness. So that is true, you know, but that doesn't mean that you're fated, right? To be a certain level. Um, Our circumstances absolutely matter. But if we're kind of, you know, maybe a lot of the listeners of your podcast are like fairly comfortable, like they're not not living in a war zone. and so their circumstances don't affect their happiness sort of as much as probably they think they will, but they do matter, of course. And then like what I've been studying, what a lot of researchers have been studying is like, what can we actually do to change our happiness? Like, you know, can we actually change our habits? Can we actually think in ways that are different? Different. And so that's like the third component. So really all of those three components matter. All of those three buckets matter. I just i just don't like to put numbers on them anymore so you know we can't say like this percent of your happiness is due to like this factor
2: yeah because um you know heritability is all about there's so many misunderstandings of what it means it's mm-hmm. just it's a population statistic you can't parse out what percentage within a person is genetic and which parts environment it's all connected within a person Um, You were only talking about partitioning sources of variance, technically, with the heritability coefficient.
1: Yeah, no, no. And this is consistently misinterpreted. That's why, like, we want to be careful. Right, right. But, like, for example, we know that nations differ hugely in how happy, like, the average citizen is. And that really is consistent with research on genetics, because if you take the entire environment and you make it more fertile, you know, you make it, you know, more positive than, like everyone's going to be, you know, happier, uh, well, to some extent. Um, So good point. Good point, Scott.
2: Yeah. When the environment is equalized, genetics Mm -hmm. becomes more important in explaining the variance Mm -hmm. in an outcome. Mm -hmm. People don't realize that either, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. like in a way, the extent to which genetics matters, is the extent to which you have a just Mm -hmm. and fair Mm -hmm. society.
1: (laughs) So. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's just, uh, it's a, and, uh, and Paige Harden, uh, has done some mm-hmm. great work on that, and she was on my podcast talking about mm. that.
1: Yeah, I read um, a New York article about her that was really
2: fascinating. Yeah. Oh, cool! So the, um, the idea that, that I have always resonated with, and I and I was wondering if you could tell me what the latest thinking about it is, is the the set point theory of happiness. Mm-hmm. It does seem like mm-hmm. we adapt quickly to uh, the hot, the extreme highs and extreme lows in our life, and we tend to return to a sort of baseline. Um, level of happiness that is maybe set by the genes in terms of rea- a reaction range. And I was wondering mm-hmm. where your, your thoughts are on the our latest thinking about that.
1: Sure, sure. So again, I think I want to offer kind of a more nuanced perspective on that than I think the average person might have. Um, so the set point theory is sort of the idea that we all have kind of like a set point or like a baseline happiness, maybe in partly, you know, influence our, our genes and, and our environment. And then when things happen to us, like, let's say we get like a raise at work or we have a baby. Uh, or we have some kind of downturn, we lose our jobs, then our happiness kind of goes up and down, but then eventually it sort of goes back to the set. And that process of sort of going back to our baseline, kind of what comes up must come down, or what comes down must come up, is called hedonic adaptation. Mm. Now, hedonic adaptation is a pretty powerful phenomenon, right? Human beings Mm. are really good at getting accustomed to changes in their lives. You can Mm. argue that's evolutionarily adaptive, that like, we need to, you know, be really attuned to changes in our environments, right? We have to be attuned to sort of threats or to opportunities. But then when things are kind of the same, like we get a raise at work or we buy a new house and first we're really excited about it, but then it's sort of the same, right? Like the, our house is kind of the same every day. Our new car, you know, uh, uh, is the same every day. Uh, we, we sort of adapt now. But research shows that we adapt much more quickly and much more completely to positive things than to negative things, right? So positive things, like I just mentioned, like we buy a new motorcycle, we buy a new bag, we, um, even a relationship, right, we kind of adapt to. Like research shows that people tend to adapt to marriage, you know, on average, after two years, people kind of go back to their previous baseline. Now, of course, there's lots of individual differences there that are kind of hidden by the, by the average, but with negative things, like when we lose our jobs, we get divorced, we, uh, we have a disability, People tend to not adapt completely to a lot of those things. they still adapt, right, so they gotta go go down and they kind of start coming back up, but they don't adapt completely so it so our kind of quote set points I don't really believe in set points um mm. but those baselines could actually change, so we could sort of permanently you know become like a little bit less happy, say after experiencing a disability or after unemployment which which' almost surprisingly to me, unemployment on average people don't adapt to completely.
2: Super interesting. Um, I think about it obviously in terms of personality psychology and and one dimension I know you've been studying recently because you've really got an interest in in connection as, as kind of this as the, the overriding uh, central theme that runs through a lot not overriding, but just a central theme that runs through a lot of um, different areas of positive psychology. Um, I'd like to double click on this introversion extraversion dimension for a second because you know we might have a set point. Um, in the sense of like a, I don't like the idea of separate, but like a baseline, a baseline mm-hmm. a, on mm-hmm. average mm-hmm. temperament. That exists. Mm-hmm. That really exists. Some Absolutely. people are grumpy. <laughs> Some mm-hmm. people are grumpy people. Some people are like, hi, hey, how are you doing? And, uh, you know, those people are annoying. But, uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, We're both that's on my the own judge. Idea. We we are, but we're not. Yeah. Hopefully, we're not annoyingly happy, yeah. right? Yeah, there's a, there's a difference. There's a yeah. difference. That's a new construct. Annoyingly happy. Uh, <laughs> there's also. am laughing I'm, I'm right now. The really annoying happiness.
1: Okay. Yeah,
2: yeah, like there's a scale. We should create that scale. Yeah. You know, but anyway, what's so interesting to me is that you may be temperamentally an introvert, but your research shows that you can experimentally get. People, regardless of whether they're temperamentally an introvert, expert, into certain situations, and it has effects that average over what your temperament is, like that over, you can override your temperament mm-hmm. in, in terms of the benefits of connection right. and sociality. So I'd love to hear about your research about that because it's so fascinating, so fascinating.
1: Exactly. So first of all, just a tiny bit of background. I've been, for years I've been doing these inter- interventions where we try to make people happier. Uh, by experimentally kind of prompting them to engage in certain kinds of strategies or new habits, like try to be more grateful in your daily life, you know, do acts of kindness, uh, engage socially more with others. And it hit me a few years ago that almost all the interventions that we've ever done that have worked to make people happier work by making them feel more connected or interacting more with other people. So when you write a gratitude letter to your mom, it makes you feel more connected to your mom, right? When you do acts of kindness, it makes you feel more connected to the world in general or to the people that you're helping. Um, and so, uh, you know, but one of my favorite studies, so so I think connection is really the key to happiness. So it sounds like a such a cliche, right? But it took me like 20 years to get to the point where I'm like realizing right. connection is the key to happiness. Um, so one of right. my favorite studies I did with my former student, Seth Margolis, where we asked people for one week to act more extroverted. And then the sort of, try to be more extroverted than you usually are. And then the second week, try to be more introverted than you usually are. We didn't actually use those terms because they have sort of connotations um, or vice versa. And people got a lot happier during the week that they acted extroverted. They got less happier when they acted introverted. It, and it didn't matter whether they were originally kind of high or low on extroversion or introversion, which really surprised us. Like, we thought, you know, Susan Kane has this lovely work, this lovely book called Quiet, I'm sure. Your listeners know about it. And, and she, you know, she argues that it's exhausting for an introvert to act extroverted. Now, in our study, we didn't make them act extroverted all the time. They could sort of choose when. And so maybe in, May in a week was not that long. Now, there's another study that did something very similar coming out of Melbourne. They did find that introverts didn't benefit. They still benefited the, from the intervention to act more social. They didn't benefit as much. And also, they showed bigger decreases in feelings of authenticity. Which does make sense, right? They felt kind of less authentic. So there's some work now, very, very new, trying to figure out like what happens when you act kind of counter dispositionally, right? Like you count, you act kind of against your personality. You might feel less authentic. I would argue you feel less authentic at first, but then over time it becomes a little bit more natural. Just like anything, when you try a new, try on a new identity or role, you know, you first like when I became a professor, right? I felt really inauthentic. I felt like an impostor. But then over time, I just kind of got used to it. Yes. Sun
2: mm-hmm. son uh, is doing wonderful research along those lines. Well,
1: she did the Melbourne give... study. Mm-hmm.
2: I know, homegirl. I know. That's why I want to give her credit. Yeah. I want to give her yeah. credit. Yeah. And I wrote about that article uh, about her research in Scientific American, if people want to read that article. Um, but the so there's some nuances here. And I do think it's also interesting there, that there was a study that came out showing that if, if you give extroverts too much socializing, they get tired, too. They're not superhuman. They're not like, a, you know, like, like both introverts and extroverts get exhausted with too much socializing, but their thresholds differ.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I want to make another point is that we have another paper that is, was looking at sort of why is it lots of research shows that extroverts are happier than introverts, which, by the way, that doesn't make me happy to know that finding, because I kind of I, I do agree with Susan Kane that like there's a lot of benefits to being introverted in our society and others but they are happier. But it turns out that it's really like the energy component of extroversion. Extroversion has three components: assertiveness, sociability, which is what most people think extroversion is, but also energy level. They're sort of more energized,
2: enthusiastic. And so it's really the energy yeah.
1: component that's related to happiness uh, of extroversion.
2: Yeah, in the Big Ten model, uh, Colin Young calls that enthusiasm. They they label that enthusiasm high arousal, uh, emotion. high positive emotion, really. But the the there is research showing that. Uh, That There's a modifier there that happy introverts exist and that happy introverts, the the moderating factor is the extent to which they have self-acceptance. So I've always found that research. I've wrote about that as well. So funny. We're talking about, I actually just, I just tweeted this out. Like the, so, well, I retweeted someone who quoted me saying the biggest key to being a happy introvert is simply Mm, self-acceptance.
1: So So is that like self-compassion or
2: uh, self self just. The extent to which you don't feel shame for being introverted, mm-hmm. the extent mm-hmm. to which you own it as part of your identity, you know, because there are those who read, you know, the Susan Cain's book and then they, they make that introversion is like a really positive part of their identity, you know.
1: Right. And their cultural differences, of course, because in other cultures, it's much yeah. more um, desirable to be introverted. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, this research
2: uh, you, you've conducted on this is, is, is so interesting and it does show the power of social uh, connections. Um now social connection is not necessarily the same thing as um what energizes extroverts, which is social novelty. So social connection part can come with, within the agreeableness domain, perhaps. Uh these things can be fractionated.
1: That is true. Although, you know, there's uh, ours and other studies have we just simply sometimes ask people to just interact more socially. So it doesn't have to be in a particular way and um And it's interesting, just engaging more socially makes people happier. There's some lovely work by Nick Epley and his colleagues that shows that just, you know, if you ask people to like talk to a stranger on the bus or on the train, uh, Liz Dunn has done this like at a coffee shop, people feel better. They think that it won't make them happy, but it actually does. So, So it's actually kind of amazing the power of social interactions. You know, we are, of course, social animals. And so, you know, research you know theory suggests that, you know, this is how like human, human uh, I'm totally blanking Homo sapiens <laughs> yeah, yeah. Homo sapiens <laughs> what, what, are what, <laughs> what are we called? What are we called? Survived like relative to other Like Homo habilis You know what happened to them Um, Because we're social right We're social creatures So it's not surprising that being social Would be associated with with happiness and flourishing
2: It makes sense It makes sense The trauma, loss and uncertainty of our world Have led many of us to ask life's biggest questions Such as who are we? What is our highest purpose, and how do we not only live through, but thrive in the wake of tragedy, division, and challenges to our fundamental way of living? To help us all address these questions, process what this unique time in human history has meant for us personally and collectively, and emerge whole, I've collaborated with my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Jordan Feingold, MD, to bring you our forthcoming book. It's called Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. It's a workbook designed to guide you on a journey of committing to growth and the pursuit of self-actualization every day. It's chock-full of research from humanistic psychology, positive psychology, developmental psychology, personality psychology, cognitive science, and neuropsychology. So lots of themes that you hear about on this podcast. And it's aimed to help us all integrate the many facets of ourselves and co-create our new normal with a renewed sense of strength, vitality, and hope. Whether you're healing from loss, adapting to the new normal, or simply looking ahead to life's next chapter... Choose Growth will help steer you there to deeper connection to your values, your life vision, and ultimately your most authentic self. Choose Growth will officially hit the shelves September 13th, and you can order your copy or the audiobook in the U.S. now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and all major retailers. If you're in the U.K. and Commonwealth, you can order now at bookshop.org.uk. We truly hope this book helps you grow and thrive and become your best self. Okay, now back to the show. What happens if you force psychopaths to be more social? Um, do they become less psychopathic?
1: I don't think so. They probably would just use it to their, they do oh, they yeah. use it to their evil ends, right?
2: That's true. They're very manipulative. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I want to do that study <laughs> from afar. Another fascinating area of research mm-hmm. that you've, you've uh, been looking at lately is how MDMA mm-hmm. can boost connection will also can be a window into understanding what, what underlies feeling understood and connected. So can you tell me a little bit about some of your work on this and what you call, quote, here we go, psychedelic social psychology, end quote. <laughs>
1: love that, did you coin that? I kind of want to inspire someone to start a new field called psychedelic social psychology. Yeah, I know. If someone could, uh, listeners can read. Um, so I'm really excited about this work. Um, so MDMA, the, the, the molecular name for it is 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine. Um, it's otherwise called Molly or ecstasy. Um, and it's a, it's a compound that has, has been shown both in sort of clinical trials and experimental research and also anecdotally to sort of foster feelings of closeness, warmth, trust, connection, empathy people while they're on the drug, they feel uh, they feel grateful, they feel compassionate, they they want to help others, really, really, really connected. And so I thought, like, what a great drug to study as a window into studying social connection. And so hmm. um, when you're on the, the acute drug, the acute effects of MDMA is that people feel really like connected, really understood, valued, and cared for, which is by the way, this is called partner responsiveness theory. Perry Reese, hmm. one of my favorite theories in psychology, and so. Studying this drug can we can be, we can use it as a research tool as like a window to try and understand like what are the psychological ingredients and what are the neurobiological roots of feeling really connected and so that research is ongoing and some has already been done but also we can use it in an applied way to try to improve people's lives right so we have a loneliness epidemic I think in the UK even uh, uh, appointed a, a minister of loneliness um, and so what if we give MDMA to lonely people, maybe just once, maybe with a booster. I'm not saying that we should, you need to take it repeatedly to have the effects because people say that they're really transformed when they take it because they feel so close. Um, Your walls kind of come down. You're really able to sort of engage with people in a deep way. It's used for couples counseling, I think, for um, not surprisingly, because, you know, imagine a couple that's trying to like talk about conflict, you know, conflict or something that's painful. People on MDMA, um uh, don't feel defensive you know they don't feel the same kind of anxiety or fear so um so it's really like kind of a beautiful molecule to to study if you're interested in in social connection which of course is like a really important topic to study social connection is a is a basic human need it's really a public health concern it's associated with health and mental health and physical health and longevity so um yeah I'm really excited about this research and there's like a lot to be done of course psychedelic science and psychedelic medicine is really taking off recently um so there's so much more to be done in this area now is
2: this purely a theoretical interest (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: um yeah it is yes it is if you you say so yes
2: okay if i say so in the abstract says finally i discuss further questions um uh whether using mdma for enhancing connection can backfire and so i thought that's interesting uh part of this paper as well you know um how can that backfire? You know, I think that's a, that's important too.
1: Whenever you're talking about a drug, it's a Schedule One substance. And by the way, there's lots of things that are Schedule One that have been actually, I have to, that have shown to have, say, much less harm than things like alcohol or nicotine that are that are not Schedule One. Uh, which means, so Schedule One means it's it's illegal, but it is being used in research, and there's some really amazing research coming out right now. Um, so in terms of backfiring, yeah, we always have to be um, cognizant. So, for example, if MDMA makes you feel really really close to others theoretically you could you know become really close to like a a really bad person right um or an Mm. abuser or like a nazi or something you know so so we that hasn't actually happened i i don't i'm not aware of that um it could lead to like infidelity right it could um uh it could lead you maybe to feel like you have to be on the drug to feel close right now again Uh. i haven't seen that evidence in research but i think we really need to to look at that, I'm actually really interested in backfiring effects. Like the pursuit of happiness can know, also have backfiring. Effect. I know, I know. Yeah. So yeah, if I might say a little bit about that, I have a chapter with a student about, about how the pursuit of happiness itself can backfire where you could, for example, try to be grateful, try to do acts of kindness for others, and maybe your acts of kindness kind of doesn't make people feel good, right? And so you feel kind of less competent or you might feel less taken advantage of or you might feel like it's a burden. Gratitude can make people feel kind of embarrassed or ashamed for needing the help in the first place or not expressing gratitude earlier, or like a burden on other people when they realize how much, you know, others have done for them, or sometimes it's awkward to share gratitude. So so even these really positive habits and activities could sometimes have negative effects. So I think we have to be always sort of uh, cognizant of those or aware of those possibilities.
2: Yes, it's such an important topic that I, I want to double click on it. Um, You and Megan M. Fritz coined this term, the happiness boomerang effect, Mm -hmm. um, which is exactly what you're describing Mm -hmm. when positive activities uh, backfire, not just positive activities, but can it backfire if happiness is your main goal in life? Like if you try to directly try to chase chase happiness every day of your life, can't that backfire as well?
1: Absolutely. And actually, that's a really great question, because I think a lot of people... Are, are doing that, you know, they're like, I want to be happy. And, and um, there's some really nice work by Iris Mouse and June Gruber and others that show that like overvaluing happiness, basically like really being preoccupied or kind of obsessed with like the pursuit of happiness can, can actually undermine it. Right. So the idea is that like, when you're constantly tracking your happiness, when you're asking yourself, am I happy yet? Am I happy yet? Right. That might actually make you feel disappointed. You know, the idea, this is kind of, again, like kind of hokey, but the idea is that you want to sort of enjoy the journey to get there as opposed to just sort of focused on the goal, you know, because then you'll probably be disappointed. So so I, I usually advise not to sort of focus too much on happiness, but focus on like the like the strategy. So, for example, try to be more kind to others, try to interact more, act more extroverted, be more social, be more kind, but not necessarily say I'm doing this to make myself happier. And, and is it working? Is it working? Because you might be disappointed.
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think happiness is an epiphenomenon of other things that you uh, focus on in your life, like meaning and purpose, um, for sure. I just, I love this article you wrote, you know, with Dr. Fritz, right? Yeah, really love this article. And, um, you, you know, you make a really interesting point in there that when someone else is the recipient of kindness, you know, like, there, there could be this Utopian kind of idea in positive psychology. It's like, oh, well, of course, you know, that's going to give us well being benefits. But look, we're human too. Mm-hmm. I mean, can't like jealousy come in? Can't like, you know, like normal other human drives that positive psychologists sometimes don't? They're, they're like, don't even talk about that. Don't talk about that.
1: <laughs> you know, I'm not, and I, by the way, I don't like the word positive psychology because it's not, it's wow. not always positive. Um, I just kind of go where the data lead. And so sometimes we find that, for example, we find that sometimes gratitude makes people feel a little worse, it makes them feel uh indebted for example right when you're grateful to others it makes you feel humble which is usually a good thing um um, so you know you mentioned jealousy we did a study because we're interested in like social media what if you express gratitude on social media um maybe that might make other people feel kind of bad you know like um you know more like when you call out people say at work like oh thank you so much to scott he's doing such an amazing job and then maybe your colleagues don't you know don't feel so good about that um so uh we're interested in sort of pursuit of happiness kind of like online too, because of course it's such a big part of our lives now. Um, yeah. Anyway, I couldn't agree with you more.
2: Yeah. It's just, it's so important. I I love it. You're doing this. Uh, and, and it's just, oh, wow, you're so productive. Um, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, you know, it's all uh, my
1: students and collaborators. I have the best mm, students and collaborators and they are,
2: that helps uh, love them yeah. so much. Yes. That helps. But you know, even to, uh, with all that uh, wonderful modesty, even aside, um there are solo authored publications i'm looking at right now so so so, so you know you can't hide from your uh, your amazingness for too long because your soul amazingness you can't hide from it for too long because even like this paper toward a new science of psychedelic sociology it's a solo authored paper and it's a it's just really brilliant uh, really brilliant truly really brilliant how you integrate and bring together so many different threads within social psychology you know you have this you have a chart of the different areas which it can be impacted. Um, and I love how you mentioned creativity, by the way, because that's my area of study.
1: Wait, sorry, is that on the chart?
2: Creativity? <laughs> you put creativity, oh, yeah, oh
1: yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have to say yeah. that paper, because I was so interested in this brand new, when I started working on it, it was about three years ago. Even then, uh, you know, psychedelic medicine hadn't really been taking off as much, but I actually ended up sending it to like 25 colleagues because I thought maybe a few of them would give me feedback and like 24 of them, and I'm not going to call out the one person who didn't give me feedback, but 24 of them um, gave me extensive detailed feedback was actually a um, beautiful. Um, and then I, and, and I really worked hard to try to, um, to try to incorporate, you know, other people's ideas into that. So it's a, it's like a, it took a village to write that paper.
2: I appreciate that. I do appreciate that. Well, you have a lot of, projects going on in your lab right now right a lot of things happening and i I just wanted to go through and discuss some of them uh one is uh what makes for good listening and i know it's in the very early stages of research but it's a very important topic one near and dear to my heart and um the principles of carl rogers unconditional positive regard active listening a lot of that is stuff that really inspired me in his writings. And I was wondering um, what modern day science, what you're finding so far. Mm
1: -hmm. So this is a really brand new project. We're also looking at conversations, right? Like what makes for great conversations? Because if if the key to happiness is connection, and how do we connect? By talking to each other, basically. Mostly it involves talking. I mean, sometimes there's no talking, but there's, uh, yeah, mostly. So. I'm working with this um, really amazing researcher from Israel, in Israel, whose name is Guy Itzchikoff. Itz- and I was actually just messaging with him uh, just now. Um, and he's an expert on listening. So he's teaching us a lot about listening. And he he, talk- he he studies what's called high-quality listening. You know, and I actually, and I have lots of ideas that, you know, we, that I want to test, that we want to test. But sort of this idea that some of it, of course, is sort of maybe might sound obvious, like the kind of nonverbal, you know, ex- gestures and expressions, eye contact. That you need to show to show that you really are truly listening the kinds of questions that you're asking my my own pet peeve i mean you're a, you know you're a podcast co- host so you're used to asking people questions a lot of people True. don't ask questions um or they don't ask detailed questions that show that mm. you're really listening that you're really getting it and that you want to know more right um and again getting to partners right that you really are, are you that makes people feel understood right so listening. The kind of listening that makes people feel really understood and valued and cared for is the kind of listening that is, is going is, to improves relationships.
2: No, it's good to know uh, that how the framework and the and, and the way that you and your colleagues are looking at that issue is going to be so important i I was thinking about Carl Rogers' notion of active listening, which is 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 asking good questions, and well, that's what makes a good coach as well. Is is powerful asking very powerful questions and
1: yeah so listening is so important right for like doctor patient relationships right therapist uh, client relationships student teacher relationships romantic relationships friendships right it's just so important so I I'm really excited about this sort of new line um, that we're sort of coming into. Yeah.
2: I'm excited that you're looking into that. Um I saw a very interesting study the other day that tried to quantify what the optimal amount of talking is for a conversation for the for the other partner to perceive you as a good conversation partner and I actually found uh, and the researchers actually found that people tend to underestimate um how much talking they should actually do in a conversation that people who talk more than than they think they should um are actually perceived as more confident and and actually the other the other person enjoys the conversation more so um that's kind of the interesting other side of the coin you know listening is important but maybe too much li- again it goes back your backfire effect yeah. backfire effect too much listening can yeah. be like geez do you have uh, you have anything to say yourself
1: <laughs> right. right it has to be reciprocal and there's this paradigm um called fast friends where it's used in research it's also used sort of in applied context where people kind of ask each other a series of increasingly personal questions but What's, and so it's because self-disclosure is really important too, right? Because it has, if you're self-disclosing, you're really showing a part of yourself. Um, it's, you can't really feel understood if the other person doesn't really see what you truly are like inside. Um, but it has to be, uh, what's the word? Symmetric, right? Like if you're doing all the talking or if you're one person doing listening, it feels uneven, right? And so it has to be symmetric. So this fast friends uh, procedure, people take turns, right? So I might ask you, you know, a personal question, like when was the last time you cried in front of someone and you might yes. answer that question. And then I really listen, might follow up and then you, and then I, it's my turn to answer the same question. Yes. And so that kind of reciprocation is really important to having like a deep connection.
2: A hundred percent. Um, and also, uh, well, trust, trust is a really valuable one, uh, within, within a high quality connection. How much do you like, uh, or studied, um, uh, rely or draw on the work of Jane Dutton uh, and high quality connections.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I've I've read her work, right? So yeah, high quality HQCs, right? High quality connections. Um, correct, correct. Right. And so she has a a theory of sort of what makes up high quality connections that are, that is really relevant, right? To what we're studying. We're trying to sort of draw on everything there is uh, on this, in this re- research for, so Bob Rosenthal, for example, is one of my colleagues at UC Riverside, where I am a professor. He, a long time ago, he did research on rapport. And so he had a theory of sort of, here are three aspects of rapport, including like synchrony. We haven't talked about synchrony, but that's no, a right. part of connection. You know, we're kind of mirroring each other's gestures or movements. And so that's part of like having rapport. So that's also part of uh, having, and I believe that's also part of um, uh, Jane dutton's work. And then Barb Fredrickson has work on what she calls positivity resonance, which is also sort of a theory about sort of sharing kind of uh, positive, positive emotion, positivity. Although I, you know, we argue that you could have, uh, you could have sort of this resonance or um, feeling in sync, even when it's not positive, right? Imagine Mm. shared grief, you know, or like shared anger and injustice, right? Um, So you could have sort of negative, I don't know what to call it exactly, negative resonance. But anyway, uh, yeah, so like really, I think it's really important to sort of stand on the shoulders of of giants and see like what they have written and then kind of try to extend beyond what they have done. And again, my, my MO is to do experimental research. So we try to sort of test things that maybe have been shown, um, like naturalistically happen in real life. And then we try to bring them in and sort of uh, manipulate them to see if, like, if you get people to sort of listen in this way, or if you get people to, uh, you know, interact in this way, will they, um you know, will they become happier?
0: I
2: love it. also uh, relates to Sarah Aljo's work, positive interpersonal processes.
1: Right. Bind, what is it, bind, find, and remind, or is it find, mm. bind, and remind theory? So, absolutely. So, the, and she talks, for example, what's really relevant to us is the role of gratitude in relationships. And then basically yes. she posits that the main function of gratitude is actually to kind of uh, maintain and like strengthen social relationships. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Really, really relevant work.
2: Love it. Um, I'm also super interested in your work on interpersonal chemistry mm. and, and how to create it. Because don't you talk to people sometimes and you feel a severe lack of interpersonal chemistry off the bat? And you kind of like, you know, you check your watch, you like look for the exit. What's going on there?
1: Yeah. So I have quite a bit to say about chemistry. We have so Harry Reese, who's the. Um, uh, sort of the de- who developed partner responsiveness theory, right, which is the importance of feeling understood and cared for and uh, valued. So he and I and my student, Annie Regan, uh, wrote a paper that kind of presented a theory of chemistry because we, I, I believe no one had actually like kind of just visually kind of described what chemistry is. And so basically we proposed that there's kind of two aspects of chemistry, what chemistry kind of looks like, you know, when you see it, like when you see chemistry, sometimes you see two people talking, you're And that's basically a series of what we call responsive interactions, where I sort of say something and you really, you respond in a way, you listen in a way that make me really feel understood and cared for and appreciated. And then like, and then I do the same to you. So we have this sort of interaction uh, that, that keeps going, but then what does chemistry actually feel like? So, and I can kind of throw this out to your listeners. Like when you've had, when you've experienced chemistry with a person or with a group for that matter, or like a sports team, what does it feel like? Well, there's sort of three components. One is it feels good, you know, it feels positive. There's sort of liking, attraction, warmth. Another is you feel a sense of like shared identity, like or similarity, right? You're like on the same team or you're a couple. Um, and then the third is you're typically you're pursuing goals. You know, so like if you and I have chemistry right now talking, we have kind of a shared goal in mind, which is this conversation or this podcast. You have sort of these shared mutually, you know, um, interdependent goals. But like we really, Harry and Annie and I really believe that chemistry is something that can be built. You know, it's not like, mm-hmm. oh, you either have it or you don't, just like happiness. Um, it's not easy, right? So I, my example is like I have to, you know, I have a lot of kids. I have four kids. And so I, I've been to a lot of like kid birthday parties. And I don't love going to kid birthday parties because you are just kind of stuck talking to people that you don't don't really know. You know, these other parents. And so like, let's say you're sort of talking to this other parent and they're not like that interesting to talk to, how do you draw them out, right? How do you build chemistry with them? Well, self-disclosure is important. So how do you get to kind of get them to disclose? So then you disclose and maybe you start asking them questions, you know, I remember talking Mm -hmm. to someone who wasn't that interested in. So I was like, but I said, well, have you traveled? What's your favorite place that we traveled to? And he said, Greece. And actually, I've never Mm -hmm. been to Greece. So I was like, well, tell me about that. What is Greece really like? You know? And so we ended up having a really nice conversation that had a little chemistry with it in it. You know, we kind of felt like, oh, felt a little bit in sync. By the way, feeling in sync yeah. is probably the most, the key to chemistry. Synchrony. In terms
2: of yes. Yeah. But this sounds like these other things are precursors to synchrony. It seems like synchrony is more an outcome.
1: Or like a, it's a symptom. Emergence. Like, like, yeah.
2: Emergence.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are all emergent phenomena. So... um yeah. I think it's debatable, right? Like sort of where in the time yeah. course things can happen. We kind of debated that a lot. So, um, yeah, we could talk about that sort of the nuances there.
2: You know, I love nuance. Um, I mean, this is a, such a groundbreaking paper, um, you know, because you and you distinguish between what chemistry looks like
0: mm-hmm.
2: versus what it feels like. Now these two things can come apart, right? Like, you know, you can have all the people in the media be like, oh, uh, Mary Sue and John, the two celebrities, you know, mm-hmm. like look at their amazing chemistry they have and they'll be together forever and then they get divorced the following week. So sometimes uh, these things can come apart, right? Our perceptions can be different from how people actually experience it.
1: And no, it's true, that's true. We could certainly be wrong. But again, when I when we say what chem- chemistry looks like, that's what I'm talking about, That those those interactions, right? So you would really need to see Mary and John in conversation and really kind of be a fly on the wall so not just kind of them like taking photos together but like really see like when they're having that conversation are they making are they kind of like throwing the ball back and forth in a way that makes them feel like they're they're feeling understood and appreciated they really are um uh you know in sync with each other so but i agree sometimes we could just be wrong
2: we can be we can be okay can we be wrong too like in terms of our own perception like it's like what if i'm what if i'm like oh wow you know sonia i think we're having such amazing chemistry right now and you're like scott nah nah
1: it's actually a question that we even maybe have it somewhere in the paper we considered can it can chemistry be one-sided right like you feel that's what i'm saying yeah, exactly that's what i asked and can i exactly i know that's why yeah that's why i brought it up so um so but we don't really know like i think it's debatable like is it really chemistry when only one person feels it but i think we kind of settled on like maybe yes like if you really feel you have all the sort of symptoms of chemistry you're feeling the chemistry you know and i'm not feeling it uh, or vice versa
2: you're not feeling it i uh,
1: I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I was just, I was just joking. I'm feeling amazing chemistry right now. <laughs> actually, I think okay. and if I might compliment you, Scott, I think your superpower is that you make people feel like at ease. You're very easy to talk to. And it, I could actually that's one like channel into chemistry, mm-hmm. right? You know, people who are kind of awkward and they don't say much yeah. and they sort of pause and they kind of look at you, you know, it's harder to develop chemistry with them and you, you have a, oh, an Thank ease. you, you know.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, pe- people should know, you know, we were friends in real life.
1: We're friends in real life. Yeah, we are friends in real life.
2: People might not know that. So I, th- I, this is not as awkward as full it sounded.
1: We're we friends in real life, although new friends.
2: Okay. So what is this idea of, um, you know, that you can count too many blessings? I find that research fasting. I saw you actually at a NIPA conference talk about that research uh, like six years ago. Um, and it fascinated me
1: ever since. And we still don't have all the data. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Can you count too many blessings? Okay, so there's there's a phenomenon in social psychology called the effort as information heuristic. Okay, effort as information heuristic. And the classic study was done by Norbert Schwartz at USC, and they asked people. I think I don't remember the numbers. It was something like list like five assertive behaviors that you have done recently, like assertive behaviors, or list like fifteen assertive behaviors. So the more people, the more behaviors people are forced to list. The less assertive they think they are because it's harder for them to think of 15 assertive behaviors or you ask college huh. students at the end of a class uh list like 12 things you liked about your professor or list three things you liked about a professor the people who list or asked to list 12 things actually don't like the professor as much overall because it's hard for them huh. to think of 12 things so could that be true for counting blessings right if i ask you to think of like 20 things that are good in your life right now and maybe you have some trouble coming up with 20 things you might conclude that your life is not as fortunate as you thought it was. Um, and also it could just be kind of a burden. Um, so we did a study where we asked people to count two blessings, four blessings, or eight or 16 or 32 blessings, and, okay. and sort of measured their affect. And we found that the, what do you think was the Goldilocks kind of number of blessings? Two, four, eight, 16 or 32? I was gonna say eight. You know, I I, I thought it'd be four, um, mm. but eight eight is actually the right answer. Uh, it, felt,
2: it totally felt right to me. Yeah.
1: But we are trying to replicate that study. We haven't been able to replicate it. So, you know, mm. just full disclosure, we'll see what happens if that's that's a real effect or not.
2: It's such a valuable nuance within the field that says like, count your blessings. You know, it's like.
1: <laughs> yeah, another nuance in the field, Again, my student, Annie, did a, a study for her like master's thesis where we she compared what's what sort of more happiness promoting for gratitude, writing a gratitude letter or like gratitude list. Right. Kind of your blessings. And it turns out that letters or kind of essays are more happiness inducing than lists. And I think it's not that surprising when you're writing like a whole essay. It's more meaningful. It's more rich. Right. You could talk about like, oh, my mom has done all these things for me. If it's just a list, it's sort of not as it's a little bit more trivial. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I know a
2: topic you could go on all day about is the use of smartphones and social media, um, and how it's uh, making us maybe unhappy in some ways. Can you talk about the research you found on the association between these things?
1: Yeah, I'm going to try to yeah, and I'm going to try to be sort of brief. Um, so another former student, Lisa Walsh. This is going to been, this is sort of her um, wheelhouse. And um, she did a dissertation. So we there's lots of research on this. You know, Gene Twenge published a lot of research yeah. showing that you know smartphone use is or technology. Uh, yeah, I would say social uh, digital media use is associated with lower well-being, more suicidality, you know, more depression, especially in girls, and really maybe only in girls. Boys tend to video play video, video games that are more social. Anything that's sort of more social tends to be happiness inducing or at least not reducing so especially in girls and especially in teen and tween girls that's where you kind of see the negative correlations other researchers show or try to argue that the correlations are really tiny so there's sort of this debate about like are they really tiny i mean they are tiny but like does that matter and Jean twangy uh, uh full disclosure is also a friend of mine and a collaborator mm-hmm. she argues no no the, even, even though these are small correlations they really do matter uh, especially mm-hmm. when you break them down by gender and age. So there's a debate, you know? So again, my take on the debate is that smartphone use, but particular social media use does seem to be negatively associated with well-being, but it's mostly true for girls and for young girls. Okay, so that's sort of my take on the literature. Now, those are all correlations, right? So it could be that, you know, if you're depressed to begin with, you're gonna use social media more. No, mixed evidence on that. So really we need to do experimental research. So there's some studies on this. So, so Lisa did for her dissertation, a big experiment where she asked people to for a week or eight, about eight days to give up their hmm. smartphone use as much as possible or their social media use. So she actually had it's actually kind of brilliant dissertation. She had four groups. Uh, either you are asked to as much as possible get off all digital media, all smartphone hmm. use, Now, of course, like if you have to absolutely do something for work or, you know, or check Facebook because there's an event happening and you want to know where it is, that's okay. So one condition they're giving up as much as possible, their digital media use. Another condition, they're just only giving up social media use. Another condition, they're sort of not doing anything, we're just tracking them. And then we wanted to have a control condition where people are kind of like giving up something that maybe makes them feel a little bit good. And it was really hard to come up with that, right, because we thought like, Maybe they should give up sugar or, but it doesn't work for everyone. So actually my teenage daughter had the idea as to use less water, right? So we live in California water is really, well, in lots of places, it's very valuable. So, you know, whatever, you not drink less water, use less water. Um, yeah. And so, but, so what we found was that, um, you know, it, we didn't have big effects. Um, we did find just with the reducing social media, some positive effects of reducing social media we actually find a really interesting correlation. We look at correlations between uses of these different technologies and well-being. And by the way, the uses were tracked uh, by, what's it called, a screen time app in iPhones. So oh. this was like very right. hardcore, rigorous tracking. Like, yeah. you know Because people don't know right. how much, like how many hours did you use your phone today, right? You, right. you don't know, right? Um, and it turned out right. that some apps were associated with less happiness and some worth more. Or not, or or not associated, and the less was like Twitter, Facebook, more happiness Snapchat. I mean, we don't know why, and I'm not like an, I'm not like a promoter of that company, but um, that was kind of interesting finding. What about TikTok? Um, I'll have to look that up. I think, yeah. In fact, I can look it up now. If, uh, it's
2: so popular.
1: Yeah, I so know put. TikTok, maybe the most popular.
2: Um, what about Instagram yeah. versus Twitter?
1: I think both of them were ne- negatively associated with happiness.
2: Yeah. Cause I see that with Twitter, but I feel yeah. like Instagram's happy. I feel like people on Instagram are happier, like just in terms of the way they write and talk to each other. That's all. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. We didn't find that in terms of their own happiness, but maybe like positivity. If you code, I was saying kind of if you code positivity in people's posts. I don't
2: know what I'm saying. It just seems like Instagram. What, what I'm saying is it seems like from my experience yeah. that people are happier on Instagram. People are grumpier on Twitter.
1: Um,
2: there's lots more heart emoticons on instagram
1: yeah 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 okay so the positive relations with happiness are uh gaming apps right so because again they're more social news app actually yeah camera app is positive associated with happiness that makes sense because you're kind of taking photos and snapchat is positive associated with happiness negative associations that are, that are actually significant are, let's see, dating apps, uh, oh, Tinder, wow. Twitter, Safari, Mail, Facebook, Blackboard, that's funny, WeChat. It's Blackboard is the one that, you know, college students use, so I guess they're
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But not, not Instagram.
1: Uh, let's see where Instagram is. I think Instagram is just not significantly related to, huh. uh, oh yeah, here it is, Instagram, negative, but not, it's basically zero. And TikTok is also the same as Instagram. It's basically zero correlation with happiness.
2: So interesting. And, and as you said, it really probably matters when you break it down to the demographics even more, um, by, uh, age and gender and, uh, other demographics.
1: Right. Our participants in this study were all what are called iGen or Gen Z because that's the, that's the, um, you know, population we're kind of more worried about, but yeah, we'd love to do something with like a across, you know, lots of, age groups
2: yeah it'd be really important research um really important the last question i wanted to ask you is um this connection between uh, mind and body i know you've Mm -hmm. done some physiological and uh, hormone markers and various things how can acts of kindness boost our immune profile and then how have you investigated that
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i'm super excited about this work so this is work Me with my, my students and former students, thank you, and uh, actually a former um, grad school buddy and friend named Steve Cole, um, who is a social psychologist who retrained as an immunologist, uh, he's at UCLA. Um, and so he does what are called genomic analyses, looking at RNA gene expression. So we've now have two different studies because we, tra- we replicated the first where we ask people, again, it's an experiment, we ask people to do acts of kindness for others. So we have one group do acts of kindness for others, another group and do acts of kindness for yourself, which I think is a great comparison condition because it makes you feel good in the moment to kind of treat yourself to like a massage or a candy bar or something, or a nap. Um, and then we also have sort of a group that sort of tracks their activities. So they're kind of trying to organize their time, but it's, it's kind of fairly neutral. Um, yeah. And what we find is that only the group that does acts of kindness for others is over a period of four weeks. We collect their blood spots, their blood before and after the intervention. Only that group uh, shows changes in their RNA gene expression that are associated with a healthier immune profile. So they they show less pro-inflammatory gene expression. So think inflammation, more inflammation is bad. So we have less pro-inflammatory gene expression. We have some indication in the second study of what we're not sure about, of more antiviral gene expression. So um, really, really cool. Uh So again, doing acts of kindness for others leads people to show in their blood sort of down-regulation of pro-inflammatory genes. Uh, So we're super excited about that.
2: I am super-duper excited about that. Uh, (laughs) We we need to get the word out there, Uh, you know, in this this environment of uh, lots of divisiveness and, um, yeah, that, 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 uh, kindness matters.
1: So, yeah, so do, so helping others makes you, it really makes you happy, but it maybe might even prevent you from, from catching viruses or getting sick, but we don't know that because this is just a marker, right? So we, we actually are not looking at
2: kind of quote real health. Thank you for that, uh, nerdy caveat. Sonia, it is amazing to have you finally on the psychology podcast um why haven't you asked uh, me to be on it before i i know Uh, i have but you know i have (laughs) i have you've been you're a busy human
1: yeah yeah you're, you're a busy human
2: but um uh honored to call you a friend um and yeah i'm just i'm so i'm so uh enamored by your career and uh i mean you are legitimately A legend
1: (laughs) in the field of psychology. You're a legend. Thank you, Scott. No, I love doing this work, and again, my students and collaborators—the best part of it, because of you know, because of connection, right? The best part of it is working with other humans, right? With my students and collaborators, and and doing this kind of thing, like talking, talking to you, talking to other people to disseminate the science is really super fun.
2: Can't wait to get this out there. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you. Pleasure.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.